Welcome to Big Papa Rob's Podcast Story Rewind. I'm Big Papa Rob. Here I rewind the story of a person, place, or thing and tell you where it originated from. Today's story will be a little different than normal. This is the continuation of a four-part series. I'll be telling you how the Pemberton Mill collapsed, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, and the Texas City Disaster have shaped the United States safety requirements as we know it today. If you haven't heard my previous three podcasts about the Pemberton Mill collapse, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, and the Texas City disaster, I encourage you to go back and give them a listen. You won't be lost in listening to today's podcast if you haven't heard them, but they do set the stage for this story. Let's rewind the story to its earliest beginnings. Following the Civil War, manufacturing was booming in the United States. At that time, there were no federal laws to regulate to protect the workers. Working conditions were dangerous, and often workers were very young, inexperienced, and exposed to many machine hazards and chemical hazards. Because of little to no media at the time, most accidents and work-related deaths were unnoticed by the public. The growth of media, such as newspapers and magazines, brought news of manufacturing incidents to the public which in turn helped the American worker to gain on-the-job protection. Examples of this is the Pemberton Mill collapse in 1860 and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire in 1911. These are just a couple of the many workplace tragedies that could have been prevented if laws were in place as they are today to protect the American worker. The first safety standards in our country was the Massachusetts Factory Act in 1877. This established an official inspection for factories and public buildings, as well as safety protocols for mechanical equipment, ventilation, and cleanliness. This required guarding of belts, shafts, and gears, protection on elevators, and adequate fire exits. By 1890, nine other states provided for factory inspectors, 13 other states required machine safety guarding, and 21 states made limited provisions for health hazards. 1908, Congress passed a federal employer's liability law designed to protect the railroad workers involved in interstate commerce. This would put stronger penalties on the employer when an employee was injured by a piece of machinery. 1910, the state of New York created the Workmen's Compensation Law that forced companies to automatically compensate for work place injuries, eliminating the need for families to take corporations to court. Unfortunately, organized labor fought the measure in court, and the appeals court declared the law unconstitutional in 1911. Tragically, this decision was one day before the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which meant the law didn't protect the families of the 146 workers that died in this fire or the many injured. After this tragic event, the New York legislature 
amended the state constitution to allow for laws to protect the lives, health, or safety of employees. And the New York State Workers' Compensation Law was born. This was also referred to by some as the Great Trade-Off. Before, workers could sue employers for damages. But with the law, gave workers rights to benefits under the law, but also protected the employer with limits to how much they had to pay. Wisconsin passed its workmen's compensation law in May of 1911, becoming the first state to effectuate an ongoing program that survived the legal challenges. Nine more states adopted workmen's compensation laws before the end of 1911. By 1920, 42 states had adopted laws. Mississippi was the last state to implement such laws. It held out until 1948. 1952, the Coal Mine Safety Act was passed in response to the 1951 explosion that killed 111 miners in Illinois. This law authorized annual inspections of underground coal mines and gave U.S. Bureau of Mines the authority to shut down mines in case of imminent danger. It also mandated ventilation in mines to limit the level of methane, as well as dusting mine walls with limestone to limit the level of coal dust. This led the way of the Federal Coal Mine Health and Safety Act of 1969. In 1963, NFPA 490 standard for storage of ammonium nitrate was implemented as a result of the 1947 Texas City, Texas explosion of two ships that caught fire, killing 581 people. This story was discussed last week, if you missed it. It's unfortunate, as you can see, that it took tragedy and death of many workers before laws were implemented to hold employers accountable. 1967 Secretary of Labor Willard Wirtz, as a result of a report released related to the dangers of uranium to miners that were dying of cancer, Wirtz adopted the Wash-Healy Act. This had an impact on shaping the National Job Safety and Health Program. Finally, in January of 1968, the federal government was starting to take notice for the need of laws to protect the American worker. President Johnson called on Congress to enact a job safety and health program virtually identical to the one developed by the Labor Department. President Johnson said it was the shame of a modern industrial nation that each year more than 14,000 workers are killed and 2.2 million injured on the job citing inadequate standards, lagging research, poor enforcement of laws, shortage of safety and health personnel, and a patchwork of ineffective federal laws. Johnson argued that a comprehensive new law was needed. President Johnson's proposal, quickly introduced as legislation, gave the Secretary of Labor the responsibility of setting and enforcing standards to protect 50 million workers. The bill also had a general duty clause requiring employers to furnish employment and a place of employment which are safe and healthful. It gave inspectors legal authority to enter workplaces without management's permission and without prior notice. Violators could be fined or jailed, and the secretary could blacklist transgressors who held government contracts. The Labor Department would help in interested states to develop their own programs in lieu of a federal one. 
industry led by the U.S. Chamber of Commerce vehemently opposed the broad powers which would be given to the Secretary of Labor. Industry campaigned hard against a, quote, crash program that would undermine the rightful role of the states. Ironically, the Labor Department itself may have hurt the bill's chances. In March 1968, it published a booklet on the job slaughter containing gory photographs similar to those Secretary Wirtz had displayed when testifying. When industry found out that many of the pictures were 20 to 30-year-old, it accused the Labor Department of deception. Unfortunately, the Johnson proposal failed in 1968. President Johnson's decision not to run for re-election, domestic violence in the inner cities, demonstrations against the Vietnam War, and many other events diverted congressional and national attention from dealing with the Workers' Safety and Health Bill that ultimately never came to a vote in Congress. On December 29, 1970, President Richard Nixon signed into law the William Steiger Occupational Safety and Health Act, which gave federal government the authority to set and enforce safety and health standards for most of the country's workers. This act was the result of hard-fought legislation battled that began in 1968 when President Lyndon Johnson unsuccessfully fought for a similar measure. In the House, Representative William A. Steiger worked for the passage of his bill by saying, in the last 25 years, more than 400,000 Americans were killed by work-related accidents and disease, and close to 50 million more suffered disability injuries on the job. Not only has this resulted in incalculable pain and suffering for the American workers and their families, but such injuries have cost billions of dollars in lost wages in production. April 1971, the agency known today as the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, more commonly known as OSHA, opened its doors. OSHA was given the authority both to set and enforce workplace health and safety standards. The act also created the Independent Occupational Safety and Health Review Commission to review enforcement priorities, actions, and cases. The act also established the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, known as NOSHA. This is an independent research institute in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, now under the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, more commonly known as the CDC. Let's talk about some of the rules and definitions. The Occupational Safety and Health Act defines an employer to be any persons engaged in a business affecting commerce who has employees but does not include the United States or any state or political subdivision of a state. The act applies to employers as diverse as manufacturers, construction companies, law firms, hospitals, charities, labor unions, and private schools. Section 5 of the act contains the general duty clause. The general duty clause requires employers to, one, maintain conditions or adapt practices reasonably necessary and appropriate to protect workers on the job. Number two, be familiar and comply with the standards applicable for their establishments. And three, ensure employees have the use of per personal protective equipment when required for safety and health.
OSHA has established regulations for when it may act under the general duty clause. The four criteria are, one, there must be a hazard. Two, the hazard must be recognized. Example, an employer knew or should have known about the hazard. The hazard is obvious or the hazard is a recognized one within the industry. Three, the hazard could cause or is likely to cause serious harm or death. And four, the hazard must be correctable. OSHA does recognize not all hazards are correctable. Section 8 of the Act covers reporting requirements. All employers must report to OSHA within eight hours if an employee dies from a work-related incident or three or more employees are hospitalized as a result of a work-related incident. Additionally, all fatal on-the-job heart attacks must also be reported. Section 8 permits OSHA inspectors to enter, inspect, and investigate during regular working hours any workplaces covered by the Act. OSHA also requires employers to report on every injury or job-related illness requiring medical treatment other than first aid. On OSHA Form 300, Log of Work-Related Injuries and Illness, known as the OSHA Log or Form 300. An annual summary is also required and must be posted for three months, and records must be kept for five years. Employers must also communicate with employees about hazards in the workplace. By regulation, OSHA requires that employers keep a record of every non-consumer chemical product used in the workplace. Detailed bulletins called Material Safety Data Sheets, MSDSs, or more commonly known today as SDSs, must be posted and available for employees to read and use to avoid chemical hazards. I'm not going to bore you anymore with all the sections of the Act, but I did want to touch on a few that you might be familiar with. Over the years, several standards were developed in the early years. In review of the information I read, a new standard was developed almost every year. Me being a safety professional in my day job, standards such as the Hazardous Communication Standard started in 1983 and has developed and has been updated in recent years. Unfortunately, as of 2022, it's number two of the most frequently cited standards. Another standard that I stand behind is the Hearing Conservation Program that was implemented in 1981. The Control of Hazardous Energy, known as Lockout-Tagout, became a standard September 1st of 1989. It took more than 12 years to develop the requirements for the standard. As of 2022, this ranks six of the most frequently cited standards. You might wonder, what is the most cited standard by OSHA? It is the Fall Protection Standard. The standard went into effect August 6 of 1995. I would say most of the violations of this standard are in the construction field. In 1970, on average, there were about 38 workers' deaths per day. Since the implementation of OSHA, that number has reduced to 13 deaths a day as of 2020. Worker-related injuries and illnesses are down from 10.9 incidences per 100 workers in 1972 to 2.7 per 100 in 2020. As I said earlier, OSHA can show up anytime unannounced. They may send you a letter in regards to a complaint they received, and you shall respond to it. 
In my experience, OSHA tends to show up immediately after serious injury, such as an amputation, hospitalization, or death. I personally have dealt with OSHA audits a couple of times. There is a saying among most of us safety professionals that if OSHA shows up, it's not if you'll get a fine, but how much. I will have to say my experience with OSHA has always been positive. I've used those times as learning experience to improve any weakness in my safety programs. Let's talk about fines that OSHA can impose on workplaces. As of the updated penalties list for 2023, a serious violation can range from $1,116 per violation to $15,625. Willful or repeated violation can run $11,162 to $156,259 for each violation. If the employer does not abate or comply with the standard or regulation, they can be charged $15,625 a day. Now let's look at the top enforced penalties issued by OSHA. In 2009, BP of North America was issued $81,340,000 in relation to an inspection of the Texas plant related to failure to abate hazards after the 2005 explosion of their, at their facility. This leads us to the second highest penalties, again issued to BP in 2005 for $21,361,500, again as a result of the explosion at Texas City Refinery that killed 15 workers. Without digging too deep into the 2009 OSHA inspection, I'm sure they found some of the same issues that were found in 2005 and the fines were upgraded to willful. As you can see by the numbers, OSHA takes employee safety seriously. And if the employer doesn't take measures to reduce or eliminate the safety risk for the employee, OSHA will enforce it. Did you know the employee is also protected from being fired or retaliated against under the whistleblower law? I hope you've learned something today from this podcast and come away with an understanding that when the safety professional in your workplace enforces safety regulations, it's not because they're picking on you. It's because they're enforcing policies to protect you from imminent danger and or something that has long-term health effects. And if you're an employer, safety should be number one. The safety expenses you may have today may save you millions tomorrow if it prevents an employee's injury or death. Workplace safety is everybody's responsibility. The stories I tell will be ever-changing from historical origins of many things and stories of people you may not know their history. And again, I'm Big Papa Rob, and this was Story Rewind, an independent podcast. Story Rewind is written and produced by Big Papa Rob, storyline edited by my beautiful wife Amanda, a.k.a. Big Mama. If you'd like to support my podcast, buy me a cup of coffee. The link is in my show notes or can be found on my social media links. I would very much appreciate the support. Today's music was powerful, stylish stomp rock by Mark July from Pixabay.
This was a Big Papa Rob podcast, 2023.